Well, I invite you to open your Bibles once more to Romans 12. Just once more, I want to thank the Cove and all of its administrators and servants for inviting me and inviting you and bringing us together. They've served us well, and we all deeply appreciate what they've done very much. And I want to thank you for your wonderful attentiveness and for your encouragement to me, especially in that testimony time. It was very heartening to see God at work. And I want to thank uh, Noel and Talitha. Why don't you stand up? People want to know who you are. So there they are. The Noel and Talitha are with me. I don't get to do that very often. Folks know who they are back home. Let's start at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, just very briefly and very, I think, profoundly, let's notice that one of the means of mercy is to be persuaded of the wrath of God. You see how the the wrath of God is functioning here? You see the argument Beloved, don't you avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise. It's a very scary promise. And it is delivered to us so that we would feed our enemies. Don't preach or believe in the wrath of God as a means to your wrath, as a justification of your wrath. It has the opposite effect. It relieves you of the need to be wrathful. It takes that whole burden off your shoulders. Some of you were abused as children. It's a huge weight. Anger seethes. Things happened to you. People treated you terribly somewhere along the way. And all justice cries out, not just vindictiveness, but justice cries out. That should not have been. And you're right. How are you going to live with that? It's going to crush you if you try to bear that. What a, what a relief to know that if this wicked person never repents, God will take care of them. You do not need to add anything to his wrath. It will be perfect. It will be just. Lay it down. Lay it down. 
one of the great hindrances to our being merciful to bad people is that we feel like if I treat them well, it's going to look like what they've done is okay. God knows it isn't okay. And it doesn't matter much what other people think, but what God thinks. Isn't it a wonderful relief that all the injustices against you are going to be made right someday? And you don't have to take care of it. In fact, if you try to take care of it, you'll mess it up. God knows exactly how to punish the wicked. So, if there's any relationship in your life where you're having a hard time returning good for evil, because the evil is real evil, there's a real sentiment of justice in you, and it just seems so wrong to return good for evil. That's not the way the universe should work. No, the universe doesn't work that way. In the end, every wrong is set right. Every evil is punished. I remember sitting on a swing in Noel's parents' backyard in 1971, early July. Just before we got on a plane to go to Germany reading Jonathan Edwards' The Nature of True Virtue. Very difficult book. And having it dawn on me for the first time, and it was one of those revolutionary moments that every single sin of the smallest and the biggest kind will be punished so that I don't need to. If you're a Christian, all of your sins were punished in Jesus. And if you don't become a Christian, all of your sins will be punished in hell. And that covers them all. Which means I can be indiscriminate in my mercy. I don't have to calculate. Where's the deserving person? I don't have to figure out, well now, if, if I don't take care of this wrong, it will never be taken care of. If I don't return some evil here, it will look as though forever nothing bad happened. That will never happen. Every single sin will be slaughtered. That's the word used for the lamb. Svagidzomai. And the apostle of love is the only one who uses it. The lamb slain, slaughtered before the foundation of the world for every sin you ever committed. And if you will not come under the blood, he'll slaughter you. Cut you to pieces, Jesus said in the parable. 
So he's not a God to be messed with. This mercy talk is not sappy talk. The price is huge for you to show mercy. Either the sins of the believer went on Jesus, which is huge, or they'll go on them forever. The price of mercy is huge. Don't fool around with it. Just lay your life down for people. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, if you will keep drawing down the mercy of Christ toward you and therefore showing mercy to others, you win no matter what. You overcome no matter what. Because the person that you're showing mercy to will either repent, feel contrite, be united to Christ, And all of his sins will have been paid for there and they will spend eternity magnifying Jesus with you and you win. Or they harden themselves against your mercy, fail to repent and justly suffer his everlasting wrath and you win. You cannot lose if you show mercy. One last question on chapter 12. Brother asked last night, and I'd fully intended to do it last night. Some of you are, are in spheres of life that are not vocational ministry. You're business people, professional people. And this mercy talk just doesn't work in certain settings. Now, is that okay? If your employee always shows up an hour late and wants eight hours of pay for seven hours of work, should you show mercy and always pay him? So where does, where does that come in? Where, where is that? Because that's where we live. It's, that's the world that has to be dealt with. So let me give you a, a way of understanding that by asking this question. Does God ever intend for his justice, his right to punish? Does that ever get shared with us? Are there contexts of life in which we share the right to bestow pain for wrongdoing? Fire somebody? Give a student a deep? And the answer is clearly yes in the Bible. This complicates matters. <laughs> Pilgrim, indigenous, tensions, which is why this chapter began with you got to have a renewed mind to navigate the complexities of the real world. The lists won't hold. I cannot give you a list for where you show 
mercy and where you don't. But I can give you some guidance, and so let me try to do that. Here's what helps me. In the Bible, we find five spheres of life where we are told not to show mercy. I'll show you. Number one, the Bible teaches us to discipline our children. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from your child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. <laughs> Proverbs thirteen twenty four, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him, which means that if you tell your child, stop Chewing with your mouth open. Now, that's a very small thing. I probably shouldn't use that as an example. You be home at 11 o'clock. And they show up at 1130. Now, you might the first time hear them out. Not a very good excuse. And forgive them. I forgive you. Don't let it happen again. If it happens again, again, sooner or later, you're coming down on this kid. You can't have the car tonight. Last week, you blew it. No car or some other kind of appropriate negative pain. This is pain. Spank little ones, take the car away from the big ones. (laughs) So there's a sphere of life in which a certain institution with a certain authority structures are granted some of God's privilege to spank people. You can't spank your neighbor. You can spank your child. Second, the Bible teaches by way of extension from the family that in education you should not reward lack of learning with good grades. It's a folly in our country that we're so bent on self-esteem, we're going to tell kids they're smart when they're dumb. We're going to tell them they got an A when they had a C performance. In school, A, B, C, D, F corresponds with reality. That's justice. It's not mercy. In the big picture, it's good for them. So love. But in the moment, you're not returning A for C. Work. So there's a second sphere. Third sphere. The Bible teaches that a laborer deserves his wages. Second Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ do their work quietly and earn their own living. So if you've got an employee and he doesn't show up again and again and again, you will stretch as far as a merciful employer can stretch, but you will not break the bank for this guy. You won't destroy these other employees. You won't let the business go under because that would not be a loving thing to do. So you're going to fire the guy. Not mercy. Mercy. You know, whenever you talk mercy, there's always other people involved. And to do mercy to this one has a ripple effect over here. 
which means you're always having to navigate. Well, now, is showing mercy here? Showing mercy here? That's number number three. Number four, the Bible teaches that civil authorities have the right to use force to punish wrongdoers. It is not unchristian for police to carry billy clubs or guns or handcuffs. It is not unchristian to have jails because God has ordained, and we're going to get to this, God willing, in chapter 13, that governments are not to function primarily by means of mercy, but primarily by means of justice. And finally, number five, the Bible teaches that churches should discipline members who are intentionally and persistently, flagrantly sinful. You should excommunicate flagrant, unrepentant public sinners. Now, what have we just seen? We have seen five institutions. This is this helps me understand, well now, isn't that all a contradiction of everything you just said? Feed your enemy, don't return uh, evil for evil, but bless those who curse you. You've just spent the last ten minutes contradicting everything you just said. The reason I don't think so is because What I've just described are five institutions. The institution of the home, by extension, education. The institution of commerce and business. The institution of government. And the institution of the church. There are institutions that God has willed. These five institutions are biblically mandated. They're not human creations. God ordained commerce and business. God ordains home and school. God ordains church. God ordains government. These institutions can only function in terms of justice. If you try to remove the principle of justice, that is, merit and responsibility, they collapse. They cannot function strictly in terms of mercy. If God wills them to exist, therefore he wills justice to hold sway. So, what... The simplest way to say it is that in these just spheres, while you will flavor them with mercy, oh yes, an employer will not be a a quick person to fire. He wants to labor with a person who's struggling with getting in on time and try to figure out their lifestyle and give them some slack and make the thing work. You'll know when you've got a Christian employer. But in the end... The business has to work or it all comes down. Everything goes down. Society comes down. If we don't hold people accountable to do what we expect them to do for the sake of the institution, that is good for people. So you've got institutional life tempered with mercy, mainly justice. And then there's your personal life, which is mostly mercy and tempered with justice. And if you say, but that sounds muddy. Welcome to reality and welcome to verse two.
Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind that as you navigate the justice-mercy tension, the institution-personal tension, you will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you see how the Christian life works? It doesn't work with lists. It just won't work. It's really complicated. Life is tough. Knowing, I mean, just to show you the complexity, the policeman who carries his gun, his billy club, his, his, uh, handcuffs, um, he, he got a beat and he lives on a beat. He knows these people. They're not just people. They're friends. So he's, he's, he's got these two roles going like this. These are my neighbors and I have authority here. I want to be a merciful neighbor. Go the extra mile over and over again. I want to be a minister. I want to lift up. I want to help. And I'm going to protect this house over here from this drug house. So I'm going to to protect this woman from this guy who's snatching purses. I'm going to hit him over the head if I have to. And then he might on Saturday have a ministry that he runs and the guy is in there. <laughs> so I'm so thankful that Romans 12 began the way it did. We're done with Romans 12 and we are moving now to uh, to. Chapter 13. And here's the way we're going to do it. As God gives us help. We're going to start in the middle at verses 8 to 10. Say some brief words there about that paragraph. Going to go to the last paragraph, 11 to the end. Brief words there and then end on this institution of government and the whole issue of, of its authority and its limits, the, authority, the limits of its authority. So verses 7 to 10. Let's read it first. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For by uh, for the one who loves, another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. So love is clearly the dominant theme of that paragraph. But here's the first question I have. Um, what does owe no one anything except to love one another mean? Uh, no mortgages. If you have a mortgage, you're sinning because you owe the bank $100,000. Compare that command in verse 8 with the verse just before it, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything 
Well, now, what do you mean? Owe no one anything. Well, you just told me that I owe some taxes and I owe some revenue and I owe some respect and I owe some honor. You just told me that I owe. And now you say, don't owe. That's not hard to figure out, is it? It, When he says, don't owe anyone anything, he means pay up. When you're supposed to. Now, all... All year long, you owe Uncle Sam some money. Now, some of you gets taken out regularly. Others, self-employed people, they got to do it quarterly. And you come to the end, if you didn't figure it right, you owe them another $1,000. And you've owed them that for a long time. Now, what does the Bible want you to do? Pay minute by minute? Because if I owe you something for five minutes, I'm sinning against verse 8. I can't. Owe you something for for five minutes. No, no, no. It just means when the bill comes, pay the bill. Don't be a slacker. Don't don't have people down your neck as one who doesn't fulfill his obligations. I, I don't think verse eight is a condemnation of all borrowing because it really gets silly if you stop to think about it. Can I borrow a rake? I borrow 50 cents every other week at church for Diet Coke. I never have change and I'm often thirsty. And I have a very generous staff who always carry change. Is that a sin to do that? There are more important things here, I think, than than trying to make a case that all borrowing is sinful. I think there's a lot of stupid borrowing going on in our country. A lot of credit card borrowing is stupid. And uh, borrowing on depreciable items is pretty stupid. Careful here because some of you are driving cars that you owe money on. And I think that's pretty stupid. <laughs> because frankly, you don't need a new car. They're stupidly expensive. And you can get a really good car for $5,000. I've never owned a new car. They are ridiculous to purchase, in my personal judgment. <laughs> Sorry about all you car dealers here. <laughs> Just <laughs> pay your employees well. I know there wouldn't be used cars if people didn't buy new cars. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Heard it all. <laughs> Next question. Why does he bring up the law? Where did that come from? I mean, why did you even think, Paul, of bringing up the law in verses 8 to 10? Because he says, uh, love is the issue here. Keep loving, keep loving. Pay that over and over. Never have that one so paid down that you never owe anybody. Keep loving people because it fulfills the law. Well, why do you even think to say that? Why are you bringing the law up again? And I think the reason might be that verse 8 sounds so sweeping. Owe no one anything but love. 
Let all your debt payments be love payments. Everywhere you turn, love is the one thing that's demanded of you. Might sound to some people, well, you mean like the Ten Commandments don't count anymore? Or we don't owe God obedience to his law anymore? I think that's kind of in the back here of his mind. And so his answer to that is, you do this, and that's included. The law will be fulfilled if you do this one big thing that I'm telling you. If you love the way I'm trying to teach you to love here in chapter 12 and 13, the law will be fulfilled. So he he doesn't want to undermine the law or say the law doesn't count or throw the law away as something bad or evil. He says it's satisfied in the life of love. Well, next question. If the law is important enough to think of here and is important enough to be brought up and mentioned, even quoted what four of the Ten Commandments plus the big one about loving your neighbor is right there in verse 9. Why don't you just say, if it's that important, owe no one anything except to keep the commandments? Why don't you say it that way? If it's that important that you really do have to fulfill it and love is what fulfills it, why don't you just skip the love piece and just say, owe no one anything except to keep the commandments? And I want to answer that question with something that has been Deeply meaningful to me. So go with me to chapter 7, verse 4. I suppose in the eight years that I spent on Romans preaching, maybe, I'm going to overstate it, maybe what God showed me and did personally for me in verses 4 through 6 was the most important thing that happened in the whole series. Now, we're all in different places because I'd already I knew Romans pretty well when I started preaching. So it had done mega work on me for 50 years. But when I got to seven, four to six, I just want to show you how it relates to what I just said in chapter 13 and what that was. So here's verse four of chapter seven. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. That's a very profound statement. If you're dead to the law, the law's done for you. You died to the law through the body of Christ. So when he died and you are united to him by faith, you died. And when you died, you died to the law. It's over. It's done. He doesn't have any claim on you anymore. Ooh, scary. You know, lawlessness is on the horizon. (laughs) You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Oh, so I, I, the law was my, my wife or my husband or my, I belong to the law. And I died to it so that I might belong to another. And now notice the alternative to the law. It's not a new list. It's a person. 
so that you may belong to another, not the law, but him who has been raised from the dead. So now I just what, what that what that did for me was impress upon me like some of you have have had lights go on here. Light, a light went on for me and I said, my whole Christian life should not be oriented on a list, but a person. Isn't that at least what this means? I die to the law that I might belong, have a relationship with, belong, belong to another, to him who's raised from the dead. So he's alive. I'm not belonging to memory. A living person in this room right now by his spirit, listening to me, able to understand me, knowing your mind through and through. We belong to him. Then came this last phrase, which has huge implications for chapter 13. In order that we might. And then he chooses his words carefully, I think. Not he doesn't say in order that we might work for God. He says in order that we might bear fruit for God which calls to mind the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what's the first one? Love. In other words, the way the Christian life works is not by law. Paul loves the law. He esteems the law. He doesn't belittle the law. He honors the law. But he says, that's not the way we live. We don't orient ourselves on a list. We don't get up in the morning and take our list out. We get up in the morning and meet a person. We open his word and we fall in love with him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that the way you live? That's the only thing that'll work in the end. And the effect of it is not works, but fruit. Now the, the, you might say, well, that's just quibbling because the fruit is a work. Yes, but the, the word fruit connotes something. Fruit grows on a tree seemingly effortlessly. It's part of the nature of the tree to have apples growing there. And that's why we, we don't want to be people who say, oh, okay, now I can make an apple. <laughs> but rather we be and apples happen. So, oh, no one anything except to love means belong to Jesus, not the law. And the law will come in the wake of this relationship. My job as a pastor, I think, is is mainly to so display Christ that people will want that to happen more than they want anything. They want to know him. Let's go to verses 11 to 14. Besides this, now literally, and this, knowing the time, 
I think the besides this in the ESV, I'm not sure how it's translated in a version you might have, means another added incentive to love besides the fact that it fulfills the law. So, oh, no one, anything except to love each other for first argument. It fulfills the law. So don't worry about the law. The law will take care of itself. If you give yourself to belonging to Jesus and bearing the fruit of love. Besides this, there's some other factors that will feed motivationally this love. And that's what he talks about first. Besides this, you know the time. What time? Three things about the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. Those three things mark the time. Love is motivated by the time in which we live. And here's the surprising thing about the time. The surprising thing about the time in these three statements is that it's Positive, not negative. Now, there's plenty of darkness, and it's here. But look, look at these three. Four, uh, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So don't be a sleepwalker. That's what the world are doing. The world is the world is the world is full of sleepwalkers. They're, they got all kinds of business savvy. They're smart as can be. They're clever. They're sharp. They look cool. And they're asleep to reality. They don't know reality. They're looking at God like this and saying, cool car. I mean, if somebody walks up to God and says, I'd like to buy one of these. You know he's asleep. He's sleepwalking. Hey, wake up. The heavens are telling the glory of God. It's everywhere. Open your eyes, you sleeper. So he's saying the time is is for wakefulness, to be awake. And then he says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's supposed to give you hope. I mean, that that's so obvious. It's like, duh, salvation is nearer now. It's like time went by and it's nearer. But the point is, don't forget it's coming. There's a great day coming. Death is part of it if he doesn't come first. And we want him to come first, so may he come first. And it's coming, so be awake, be ready. He's coming. Triumph is on the horizon. And then the last one is salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Night is far gone. The day is at hand. Sure, we live in the night. But there's an overlapping of the kingdoms, remember? The kingdom has broken in. This age is still lasting. The dark is still existing. The light has broken in. We are people of the light. Let's penetrate the darkness. All of those words are meant to give incentive of hope, and hope is the source of love. Rejoice in hope, remember? And joy feeds love. So that's the first part of those 11 to 14 verses. And they all gives, uh, give out hope. And now verses 12 in the middle to the end. So then, 
let us cast off the works of darkness. We don't live in the dark. We live in the light. We're not people of the darkness. Put on the armor of light. If you go over to First Thessalonians and see the parallel for putting on the armor, it's the breastplate of righteousness. I'm not thinking of Ephesians here now. You're all going to Ephesians in your head. Uh, Ephesians 6. I'm thinking of First Thessalonians 5, where faith, hope, and love are the three pieces of the armor in First Thessalonians. And so I think to put on the armor of light means to trust Jesus, hope in Jesus, love Jesus and love people. That's the armor of light. And skip down to verse 14 just to see the clarification of this clothing. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So parallel, put on the armor of light at the end of verse 12 with put on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14. If you're trusting him and hoping in him and loving him, that's like putting him on. The main statement here, put on the Lord Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 4, you belong to another. I've tried to think what, what, what might be in Paul's head with this put on the Lord Jesus. Wear the Lord Jesus. And I'm, I'm tempted to run with, you know, wear him like a sport coat or wear him like shoes or wear him like a overcoat. But, but in the context, the most Immediate suggestion is wearing like armor because of verse 12. Put on the armor of light. When you wear armor, you wear protection. And they usually have an insignia of some kind, which side you're on. So the least, I would say, there's more, I'm sure to this. The least would be, he's with me and take care of me and he'll protect me and I'm his and I want everybody to know it. I'm wearing him. Got a big JC (laughs) or cross or something. And then just the specifics. Walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Make no provision, end of verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The alternative to planning flesh. Okay, schedule some time alone with my computer to do pornography tonight. Can make sure that I show up at a place where something's happening that I know I shouldn't do. But if I'm just there and it's happening, then I won't have, you know, made it happen. I just plan to be there. All kinds of subtle ways that we can do this providing for the flesh. The alternative to that is put on Jesus. Isn't that a strange? Put on Jesus, don't make provision. Put on Jesus, don't make perfect. So I think you get up in the morning and you have in your mind, maybe, I mustn't make provision through the day for any act that God says is bad for me and hurtful for his honor. What's the best way not to make those provisions? Well, don't don't lead your life mainly in terms of 
negations. Lead your life mainly in terms of affirmations, because that's what this verse says. The alternative is put on Christ. So get up in the morning and dress yourself with Christ. And very simply, I think it means going back to the word, looking for Jesus, finding out things about him, asking the Lord to open the eyes of your heart, asking him to... Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, because if I'm satisfied in you, guess what? I won't do pornography. I won't steal today. I won't lie today because I'm satisfied in all that God is for me in Jesus. But if you're not feeling that contentment, you've got to put him on. So we fight positively, mainly, not negatively. Now let's go to verses 1 to 7 and conclude with this government piece. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Democrat, Republican, they're all from God. Whoever gets elected next November a year will be God's choice. And uh, dictators in Cuba, North Korea, China, Vietnam, they're all by God's design. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Good grief, Paul. Wake up. Don't you want to say that? I mean, let's be respectful of the Bible, but you won't ever penetrate to the meaning of the Bible if you don't get upset by the Bible. If you don't find problems in the Bible, you won't ever grow in your understanding. I find that verse very problematical and and I'll come back and solve it for you. I hope. But good night. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. And that's absolutely absurd. Isn't it? Chapter 8, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Who's doing that? Caesar. So you got to be just nonplussed by these words. He, He writes like he's not alive in the real world. There's a reason for why he writes this way. Submit yourself to the Bible. There's a lot of scoffers who come to the Bible and and read that and just mock. Don't treat God's word that way. When you see something that baffles you, just realize you got something to learn. There's something to be changed in here. There's something to be figured out here. Where are we? For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only for 
to, to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Okay. Now, let's think about this for a little bit. First, first, let's say something absolutely positive and perhaps in America too taken for granted. Namely, let's say verse four. He is God's servant for your good. Government is a glorious blessing. For our good from God. We we get so sick of politics that we sometimes run a terrible risk of failing to realize what an awesome gift any government is. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. When I preached on this, it was 2005. It was June. And there was an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune about the city in Mexico called Nuevo Laredo, across the border of Texas. And it had collapsed into anarchy. All of the civil authorities had been overrun. I'll read you the description. Alejandro Dominguez was the only person brave enough to be police chief. Hours after he took office, assailants riddled his body with dozens of bullets in this city, racked by a turf battle between Mexico's two main drug gangs. The streets were virtually empty Thursday, a day after the killing, with only a handful of federal police armed with rifles and automatic weapons. We are defenseless, Attorney Zorino Medrano said at City Hall. It's obvious that the criminals are better organized than the authorities. They sent the National Army, and even they weren't respected. Who else can we ask for help? And I just want you to imagine your city when 911 does not answer. There are no policemen coming at your beck. There are no firemen coming at your beck. There are only mobs. And they're doing what they please with nobody to stop them. You know what would happen at that moment? You would have any dictator in a minute. Mobs are really scary. Most of you have never been near a mob. You've seen them on television. I've seen just enough violence in my neighborhood real close to know how absolutely heart-stoppingly scary violence is. Give thanks for any government at all (laughs) that we can be here, that when we drive home, we will pass people about four feet doing 65 miles an hour. That's a combined 130 miles an hour, which if they were to just swerve an instant before you passed, you would be cream cheese. We take obedience for granted everywhere. And this society stunningly works. 
thousands of processes, thousands of procedures, thousands of ordinances and laws working. It won't work for long where a basic moral substructure isn't holding sway. There can't be enough laws to make everybody good, to make everybody keep the speed limit or keep their contracts or keep from hitting somebody over the head or keep from poisoning people. Thank you, God, for government. I think that's what Paul wants us to feel. It's a gift of God, and it was given after the fall as a dam against the river of evil in the human heart. If there were no government, there would be horrific anarchy everywhere in the world. And anarchy is worse than any government. Now, last basic issue and question. Um, first, maybe two more. Paul, how can you speak in such absolute Statements like verse three, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Let's go to chapter eight. I quoted it on the fly a minute ago, but you just got to feel this. Chapter eight, verse. Well, let's start at verse thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that's a statement of fact. Christians were killed regularly. And they were killed regularly by officials as well as mobs. And for the first three centuries until Constantine, to become a Christian was to risk your life officially. Not just because your relative didn't like the fact that you changed religion, but that the government said, Caesar is Lord, and we say, Curios, Christos, Christ is Lord. And that's treason. And today, in China, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and all the Muslim countries, to obey Jesus in evangelism is illegal and will Bring down the opposite of verse 3, for doing good. So, Paul, please, what do you mean by talking this way? Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. They have been in many settings, but too bad, and so on. My answer to that question and and there is more than one answer, I believe. I'll just give you one suggestion, is this. I think Paul knew what he wrote in chapter 8, and he's not stupid. 
And when he gets to chapter 13, he knows he could write this in a very qualified way. He could write and say, Caesar's really a jerk, uh, but submit anyway. Um, I think Paul knows that he's writing from Corinth to Roman Christians, and he knows who's going to read this letter. Caesar's going to read this letter. The household of Caesar knows about the church. They will get this letter. It will be read by enemies, political enemies. So Paul writes, I think, in a way that communicates one thing to the church and one thing to Caesar and his household. What Caesar should read here is, you are under God. All the authorities are there by God. Do not think that you are God. The prophetic word that Caesar should pick up from this is, I'm a lackey. I'm a subordinate. I am an appointee. And secondly, he should pick up, there's a moral law I am obliged to reward. Those two messages come loud and clear to Caesar through this paragraph. The church knowing that they've just read chapter 8 and scratching their head like I scratch mine when they read this, hears it a different way. And we talk this way. If my son sasses his mom, and I take him by the shoulders, shake him, see, you don't talk to your mother that way. He might say, I just did. I just talked to her that way. What do you mean I don't talk to her that way? I just did. I said, you need a lesson in grammar, boy. This indicative statement is an imperative. Don't we talk that way? You say your kids, we don't do that in our family. When they just did it. We don't do that in our family. What do you mean we don't do that in our family? We mean... You should not do that in our family. I think that's the way we should read this. Rulers reward the good. Well, they don't. Well, they do if they do what's right. So I think the church would hear rulers in God's universe do what they're supposed to do. Of course, if they don't, They're not obeying God, and we know they don't, but they should. I think that's what's being delivered here, which leads me to my last question. When do you disobey them? What's the place of civil disobedience in the life of the Christian church? And I close with this. Ever? It's a pretty strong statement. Every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists 
the authorities resist what God has appointed, do you say, okay, never do you disobey the government? I don't think so because there are numerous biblical instances of God-approved civil disobedience. I'll give you just a few quick examples. Acts 5.27, where Peter says, You may tell us to be quiet, but we must obey God rather than man. So the officials said, Don't preach this anymore. Peter goes out starts preaching again. Daniel 6. I love this picture. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the presidents and the kingdoms are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever makes petition to any god, man, uh, any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. Now, that is law. Nobody prays to any man or any God but me for 30 days. <laughs> and then it says, and Daniel knew that the document was signed and went to his house and went up and it had windows. And in the upper chamber, he knelt down and faced Jerusalem. Just in your face. <laughs> I get in front of my window. This is not an underground church. Isn't that incredible? You tell me not to pray to my God? Where's a window? I'll die to pray for my God. With my God. To my God. So there he goes to the... And then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, these are gutsy people, my kind of people. I just want to be like one of these guys. You bow down to my statue here, I'm the king, or are you going in the furnace? <laughs> you throw us in the furnace. We're not bowing down. Exodus chapter 1. Now you, this is Pharaoh talking, you midwives... When you find that one of these babies is about to be born, you, you kill them. And the midwives wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. The king of Egypt said to the midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the, to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, let her live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Well, that's enough illustrations. The Bible has God-approved civil disobedience in it. And the question is, when? Now, here's one suggestion about when. This would be the most common suggestion. If the law of the land commands what God forbids... You don't do that commandment. Clear enough. Or if the law of the land forbids what God commands, you do do it. Clear enough. I don't think that's enough. Do you? It isn't enough. 
It doesn't cover all the situations. It doesn't cover situations where the law of the land um, creates a situation in which the whole atmosphere is contrary to the will of God. That something is required which the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid, but it sure looks like it ought to be forbidden explicitly because it's so contrary to love. Like, you may not drink out of this water fountain. You drink out of that water fountain. You go in that restroom. You sit at the back of the bus. Where in the Bible does it say, don't sit at the back of the bus. Doesn't say it. And a whole hundreds of Jim Crow laws in our land, 50, 60, 70, 80 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, and the day came when there was a flashpoint and Martin Luther King led peaceful, non-violent, civil disobedience. What criteria did he use? Was it right? Where were you in the 60s? On the wrong side, I would venture to say. I was. Greenville, South Carolina was not a hospitable place. I've had a lot of repenting to do. My rationales in those days at a high school student were stinking evil. So I've thought a lot about that. I've been to jail once for sitting in front of an abortion clinic. I've been hauled away more than once when they didn't do jail, trying to think through and act through when do you do this? When do you just sit down and say, no, not going to hurt anybody. Go to jail if you want me to, but I'm just going to say no with my body. I think abortion is a horrific evil in our culture. So let me, and so is racism, and the remnants of it are still there. We need to continually work on it. So here's my effort. I'm going to close with an effort to give you some criteria because I think the days are coming when more more will be in front of us. We've got some decisions to make as a church. We're going to just fit in, be conformed to this world. Or we're going to stand up one of these days and say, no, we're not going there. You may You may pass a law that I can't spank my child. I will spank my child. I'll go to jail rather than not spank my child. You make a law that I have to hire on this staff a homosexual at church. I'll break the law. I'll go to jail. We have to decide where we're going to draw some lines here. I mean, where we don't fit in as nice right wing Republican white Christians. And start looking a little more like the radical Jesus, here are my criteria. Number one, 
the grievousness of the action sanctioned by law. How atrocious is it? Is it a traffic pattern you don't like in your city? I don't like it. I'm going down the one-way street, the wrong way. Or is it the killing of millions of children? There's a difference between not liking a traffic pattern and having babies slaughtered in the womb. Is it putting a whole group of people in bondage or at risk? Number two, the extent of the unjust law's effect. Is it a person affected here and there? Or is it millions? Extent. So grievousness first, extent second, third. The potential of civil disobedience for clear and effective witness to the truth. Now, this one's really tough. The potential for civil disobedience for clear and effective witness to the truth. In other words, is this going to work? Is Does it have any prayer of having an effect? One of the reasons, a little confession here, one of the reasons that Rescue operations are not happening today for the cause of the unborn and only lasted about three years in this country is because there were so many wackos. And I began to see that I couldn't manage these rescues. I was called upon often to stand in front of a group of two or three hundred people, six o'clock in the morning to get them on the buses to go sit. And I was to give them spiritual challenges for how to behave. And I knew there's only one thing that will carry the conscience of America. Suffering. Not feisty one-upmanship with the aborts across the street. They're shouting at you, shout back a more clever saying. Guess what? What goes on the media that night is your stupid statement and your hard, angry face. (laughs) What carried the day in the civil rights movement was the ugliness of the Bull O'Connors and the meekness of the suffering. We didn't have it. We didn't have it in the cause of life. We were just too mean. We did not have a broken heart. We just looked like the world doing our rebellious thing. And the world is not impressed with mirrors of itself. I I don't like feisty, fast-talking, right-wing radio talk show hosts. I agree with most of their policies. And I don't like them. They don't do any good. They're just mean-spirited and they make people look stupid and foolish. They want to get the last word and they breed that in the church. So that we try to talk cool and fast and put down. Just like the world. And think we're winning because we, we, we found our Christian fast talker who can outdo the liberal fast talker. Jesus never was like that. He came to die. We will carry the day morally 
when we seize the moral high ground of suffering and mercy, not quick-witted, fast-talking, one-upmanship. So the third one is the, the potential of a clear and effective witness. God made it the time in the 60s. I believe it was of God, and God made it not the time in the late 80s for the cause of life, but I don't know when it might come. Lastly, number four, um, there has to be a movement of a spirit of courage and conviction in God's people so that a flashpoint arrives. A flashpoint. When there's such a spirit in the, in the culture, in the movement, so it's called the movement, where you just touch this with the flame of a Martin Luther King speech, and phew! That might not have happened 20 years earlier, might not have happened 20 years later. There was an unusual moment in our history. It was in the music, it was in the air, it was in the soul, it was, it was the moment. God delivered us from very much sin. We have to discern when those times in history arrive. So let me close our whole time together with just a closing exhortation concerning if the day comes when you find yourself saying no, What spirit should you have? No to some evil. Vindictiveness should be gone. Concern for your mere personal safety should be gone. Expediency that things will go well for my house. When it might be torched. Or graffiti, I'm willing to pay without vindictiveness. The Lord cuts away our love for possessions, our love for convenience, our private benefit, clothes, possessions, safety. Instead, we become free from these things. We love others. We love both the bull Connors and the Martin Luther Kings, and neither of them was perfect. We all know that. One just happened to be on the right side. Both the dying children and the killing abortionists. Mercy, mercy. We don't just say hate for the killer killers. We want him saved. It's amazing to me that as you listen to the testimonies of former abortion clinic administrators who have seen the light and changed, most of them changed through being personally loved by a pro-life person, not because their clinic went out of business through enough protests. Somebody got in their lives and stuck by them and kept sharing the gospel to them and said, God can even forgive 30,000 murders. Really? 
There's hope beyond this horrible carnage. A tone and a demeanor in the Christian world of not strident, not belligerent, not rock-throwing, not screaming, not swearing, not violent. We are people of the cross. The Lord submitted himself to crucifixion willingly to save his enemies, and we are called to take up our cross and do the same. Every time we bring justice to bear on anybody, whether we're firing an employee or sitting in protest, we are taking the log out of our own eye. And when you pull a log out of your eye, it hurts enough that there are tears. And the tears is what the world needs to see. When we say our no to the injustices around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, a strange note perhaps to end on, but I think of you and I pray that you would apply it to us. The days that are coming will be darker and brighter, and I pray that we will be part of the brightness. And the brightest thing in the world is... Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. Give us the capacity to so know you that our joy is invincible in the face of affliction. And our heart is broken in the face of misery and sin. I pray this in Jesus' name.